Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. She's a fashion blogger, model, and entrepreneur. She's amazing. The latest tips on fashion, beauty, wellness, travel, and her lifestyle. And now, here's the founder and creator of Not Basic Blonde, Olasha. Hi guys, welcome back to Not Basic Blonde podcast. In this episode, you will learn a lot about your gut from the gut health expert, Dr. Will Bolsovitz. Also, he is the gastroenterologist and the author of the book, Fiber Fueled. So in this episode, we will be talking about the gut health, plant-based diet, how Dr. Will lost 50 pounds by switching to plant-based diet, and what is magic bullet to lose weight, what is the difference between prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics, should we take probiotics after antibiotics, and juicing versus drinking smoothies, benefits of red wine, the best remedy for constipation, and how to cure food allergies. Tune in to find out. Hi, Will. Welcome to Not Basic Blonde Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you for being my guest. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Happy to. Hey guys, uh, glad you're here. I'm Dr. Will Bolsowitz. I am a gastroenterologist in Charleston, South Carolina, and I work full-time as a medical doctor. I take care of people who have digestive issues, um, and I also happen to be uh, in my spare time. Well, I guess let me say this. I'm a dad, um, so I have a daughter who's six, and I have a son who's three. And then in, in the time that I have left over, I do some things on Instagram as the Gut Health MD. And I uh, am the author of a new book called Fiber Fueled, which is a New York Times bestselling book that just came out very recently. That's amazing. You have your hands full. <laughs> very busy. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on these days. Yeah. How did you decide to start your journey as a doctor? Well, you know, I mean, it really goes back to like the boy version of myself, meaning like teenager where I um, was always very focused on the idea of doing something that would help people. So I originally thought I was going to be a veterinarian and I was very scared of cats though. So I just couldn't do it. So I um, decided to shift gears and become a doctor. And I started that process, you know, I mean, all the way back when I was 18 years old, I went to college with the plan to become a doctor. I didn't know what kind of doctor I would be. I actually thought I would be a pediatrician and ended up um, falling in love with gastroenterology, my specialty, when I was a third-year medical student. Um, and uh, what I love about my field, by the way, is like I am the expert for the esophagus, stomach, small intestine, the colon, the liver, the pancreas. I have all this diversity, all these different organs, and I'm sort of the guy who you know, people turn to when they have issues for any of those things. And I also get to spend a lot of my time doing procedures, which I love. Um, so I spend half my time in the clinic talking to real people and trying to figure out how we can help them. And then I spend the other half of my time in, in a procedure unit um, doing upper endoscopies and colonoscopies. So, you know, I mean, I'll just tell you that I, it was never my plan to be an author. Um, Never my plan to have an Instagram account. I just have always been very focused on taking care of my patients and I take it very personal. I really, really want to give them the best uh, possible to treat them the same way that I would treat you know, my own family member. And so that sort of natural drive has always been there for me and it's carried me, it's carried me professionally. It's carried me to do things that maybe were outside of my comfort zone or take risks like starting my Instagram account or writing this book. But really it always comes back to that like same motivation that I had when I was a teenage boy, which was just, I want to get out there and do things and use my talents to help people do something good. 
Yeah, being a doctor takes a lot. I've had a dream when I was a kid that I wanted to be a doctor, but I ended up not pursuing it. And I just finished. I mean, I graduated from business school and I just worked in IT project management before I dive in into influencer and blogging. So, but I always wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be general surgeon or a dentist. <laughs> There's so many ways that we can help people. There's, you know, there's things that you do that you help people. Um, so we all have our role. You don't have, obviously you don't have to be a doctor to do good in our society. There's so many other ways that we can, but where did you grow up? I'm very curious. So I was born in Russia and I came to us when I was 17. Oh, wow. When I was, so when I was, I went to Russia with my mom, this was 1998. And um, we went to Moscow and St. Petersburg, and we also went to the Ukraine. Oh, that's And <laughs> yeah, it was fascinating because at that point in 98, most, very, very few Americans had actually been to Russia. It's beautiful. I mean, it is unbelievable. St. Petersburg is, I, I can't wait to go back. It's one of the nicest cities I've ever come across. Yeah, it definitely has beautiful architecture. Where did you go in Ukraine? Which city? Let's see, we went to Kiev. It, so at that time in 98, so I know that you can appreciate this, but for the people listening at home, they may not realize that like, you know, for example, around the Red Square, it is an extremely affluent area. And St. Petersburg is very wealthy as well. Kiev, it was not, I mean, it was really poor, at least all the parts that I was exposed to. And my mom was there on business. So my mom was uh, uh, an attorney who would help scientists write patents. So she was meeting with these scientists, both in the Ukraine and in Russia. And um, I went with her. And so I was meeting these scientists in, in Kiev and they were, so, they were so warm and generous and they wanted to give me the absolute best that they had. But it was very culturally different than I was used to. And so it was just, obviously <laughs> it was a little bit tough because some of the food, I was just like, ooh, I don't know if I can eat that. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, some of the food might be different. We use a lot of mayo and like different salads. <laughs> some of it is not kind of the same as here. Definitely yeah, and I, different. Back then, I, back then, I was not plant-based at all. I mean, go back to 98, I was as American of a diet as an American can have. I was like hot dogs and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I see. So I was born actually in Soviet Union in 1991, then Ukraine, like the part of my city became Ukraine and, but actually I'm Russian. So it was, you know, it's just complicated always to explain. So I just tell from Russia because basically Eastern part of Ukraine is Russian now. Right. So right. it was very interesting. And I don't mean to get us completely off topic, but <laughs> I feel compelled to share this, that I recently got my 23andMe results back. Have you ever done this? Yeah, and I, I've done it, but I had 97% European, 1% Indian, and 1% uh -huh. Swedish, and 1% something else. I forgot. <laughs> okay, so you, you are who you thought you were. It's very interesting. I was raised to believe that my father's side was 100% and my mother's side was 100% Irish. That's what I was raised. And my uncle, who's crazy, would always tell me that we had this relative who was Russian. And um, it's very interesting because I got my 23andMe results back and I'm barely Irish, 6% Irish. And I actually am mostly Polish, but also some from the Ukraine, some from Lithuania, and also some from Russia, specifically Moscow and St. Petersburg. Wow, that's interesting. Your last name is yeah. Polish? Yeah, yeah. My so my father's side is 100% Polish, and the and what's interesting is that my on my father's side, all the information was completely accurate. Like my um, I knew that my grandfather's family was from just outside of Krakow, in southeast Poland, and when I got my 23andMe results back, they that's actually what lit up is that southeast Poland really sort of lit up as being a, the hotspot. So 23andMe is very fascinating. Yeah. Well. 
my grandpa on my mom's side is Polish and so all that side was kind of Polish Ukrainian so my mom had that too but I don't have it in my DNA <laughs> my dad's side took over <laughs> yeah that's yeah. cool yeah and getting back to our topic would you please tell us more about fiber fuel book that you wrote it's very interesting I almost finished it it's it's amazing oh thank you yeah, so it, it, the the backstory is is this is that I I ate the standard American diet and it caught up to me. And I 10 years ago, I was 30 and I had gained 50 pounds, like over 20 kilos. I had anxiety, I had high blood pressure, I had low self-esteem, I felt miserable, I felt like I was 60 years old. And I needed something to change. And ultimately what I found was a plant-based diet and this plant-based diet transformed my health. I, the weight melted off my body, the blood pressure issue went away, the anxiety lifted, my self-esteem surged back, I started feeling young and vibrant and alive. And when this happened to me, I, like the thing is I'm a nerd, I'm just, I'll just come clean and admit that right up front. I'm a total nerd. And so I needed to see that there was actual research studies to back, back up my experience. And when I looked at the medical research, I was really surprised to discover that there were, there were thousands of studies to support the benefit of a plant-based diet. And so when I saw this, I started to bring this into my clinic to take care of my patients. And they were having miraculous recoveries too. I was reversing irritable bowel syndrome. I was taking patients with ulcerative colitis and making it like they didn't have it anymore. It was, it was amazing. And so I got to a point where I needed to share this story and I started my Instagram account that got health MD in 2016, literally with zero expectations. Like if I had a thousand followers, I would have been like, Whoa, I have a thousand followers. That's crazy. And it kind of took off and I started showing up and doing podcasts with people. And I had a podcast in 2018 that went viral and that motivated me to write this book. I started in 2018. It took me two years. Um, it's the most focused thing I've ever done in my entire life. I mean, I really, to me, this is sort of the consummation of all my training, everything that I know. And I pulled it together and it's kind of, I mean, I love the fact that you can take an entire, you know, more than a year's worth of work and you can hold it in your hands and you can consume this. You can read this in a couple of days, everything that I've learned in my clinic about how to manipulate the microbiome to optimize it to heal ourselves because the microbiome is so connected to everything throughout our body, not just our digestion, but also our immune system, our metabolism, our hormones, even the way that our brain works. So it's everything that I learned about how to optimize the microbiome. I really feel like that's what this book is. It is the playbook to optimize the microbiome. Yeah. Your book is packed with so much great info. It's just very engaging. I couldn't stop reading. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And what do you think of plant-based diet for, especially for meat lovers? How can you just go to plant-based diet? How can you? Well, so for a person who's a meat lover and wants to switch to a plant-based diet, um, let me just say that I, I don't want you to put too much pressure on yourself. I want you to just make the decision that this is the direction that you want to go and then start to do it and take your time. And it's okay if you continue to consume some meat, but what you want to do is you want to start to taper it down. So reducing the portion size and introducing simply, you know, for me, I think it's a nice step to just, Hey, not too much pressure. Let's have one plant-based meal this week, one completely plant-based meal. And if you like it, you can bring it back next week and then you can keep sort of escalating from there. One of the ways that I would encourage people to consider tapering down on their on their meat consumption, because by the way, the motivation here, just so that people know, is that plants really heal and optimize our microbiome. They are the preferred food of our microbes. And meat is, is quite the opposite. Meat is rather inflammatory to our microbiome. So the way to approach this is to start to taper down and do a systematic reduction or elimination of the meat where first you get rid of the processed meats like the hot dogs and the cold cut sub get rid of that first then get rid of the red meat 
then get rid of the uh, pork or the poultry. And then you can get rid of the, you know, the eggs and the dairy. And what's left is at this point, like fish, and you get rid of the fish last. To me, that's sort of the approach that you can take to start to transition off of these and start to replace it with more plant-based meals. I see. For me, I mean, meat, I don't really care about, but as far as eggs and dairy, oh my God, I love it. I can't live with that. (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing is this, we don't live in a world of absolutes. What I mean by that is you don't need to feel pressure to be something that doesn't feel right or natural to you. But I do want to encourage people to understand, and this is what my book Fiber Fuel is all about. I want people to understand that these plants, they heal, they heal our body. And so the more that you have, the better you're going to be. If I could take everyone and make them 70% plant-based, I would do that. But then I would want to try to get them to 80 or to 90 if I could too. And so it's okay if you're still having some eggs or some dairy, that's completely up to you. Um, But to me, what I'm looking at is how can we get more plants into the diet and let's, let's not, let's not limit ourselves. Let's continue to push ourselves to get even better and better. And would you please tell us a little bit about your journey with food and fiber? Like how does the way you eat now impacts your life? So, you know, I, I mentioned that when I, when I was 30, I was sick. I, I gained, you know, I was 50 pounds overweight high blood pressure, high anxiety, low self-esteem, low energy, lots of fatigue. And changing this diet, changing my diet to a plant-based diet allowed me to reverse all of those issues. And it's quite fascinating because I I legitimately feel like I actually reversed aging because I'm 40, like I'm turning 40 this month and I feel younger at 40 than I did at 30. I definitely have more energy. There's no way I could have wrote this book if I didn't have energy to spare, because I was writing this book literally at five in the morning, I would wake up early to write it. So for me, this has been completely transformative. And for people who are into fitness, like I'm into fitness, for people who are in the fitness, this has been transformative in terms of my fitness um, and my, and like my exercise gains in a powerful way as well. So let me just say that, you know, I used to work out six days a week, I was single. I was in my early 30s. I was working out six days a week and I could make myself strong and I could build endurance, but I didn't really look that good. At least I didn't think I looked that good. Um, I still had the gut. I couldn't get rid of the gut because I wasn't eating properly. And when I changed my diet, I was able to get rid of the gut. I was able to fix these issues. And I exercise way less now. Like, I went from working out probably eight or nine hours a week to where now I work out two times a week with my trainer, 30 minutes each time. I hit it really hard for 30 minutes. Like there's no, you know, screwing around on the internet or something like that. But I mean, I literally exercise for an hour a week and I, I feel and I look so much better relative to the way I was when I was younger and working out way more. And it all is because I'm just eating properly. And you know, there's a myth that if you don't eat enough protein, your muscles will not be lean and you will not achieve the body results that you want. You won't be really able to lose weight because you don't eat enough protein. And being a plant-based diet, where do you get your protein from? Just nuts and uh, plants and where do you get it from? Yeah, no, I love. I actually love that because all plants contain protein, and so you know there really is no challenge to getting protein from from our plants, particularly for people who are not competitive bodybuilders. If you're a competitive bodybuilder, it's a little bit different because most competitive bodybuilders are going to do substantially more, substantially higher levels of protein. Um, and that can be accomplished on a plant-based diet. There, there are people who are professional bodybuilders who eat 100% plant-based. You know, for example, there's a guy who I'm friends with. His name is Nimai Delgado. And Nimai was born vegetarian and then later became vegan. So he's literally never had meat his entire life. And he's a prof- professional bodybuilder. 
And so it's entirely possible to get the protein. You know, think about for a moment, think about the cow, right? Like we get our protein by eating the cow or some people do, but the cow doesn't eat meat. The cow, they get their protein from the grass. Um, you know, the gorilla, the elephant, the rhinoceros, they're all herbivores. They, they eat plants and they get huge because there's protein in plants. You just have to eat enough plants. And people in the United States, when they've actually studied this, they look at, you know, for example, vegans, and they look at how much protein they actually need and then how much they get. And they find the vegans actually get 70% more protein than what they actually need. So from my perspective, I'm not worried about the protein because I know that I'm getting more than enough of it by eating a varied, diverse plant diet. And I will just tell you that, like from my perspective, there has been no loss in the gym. If anything, there's been gain because I am, I've been more than capable of putting on muscle mass and reducing my body fat um, on a plant-based diet. But the other thing that I notice is I can go harder in the gym because I recover way faster. So I don't have nearly the soreness that I... That's very interesting. Hmm. And yeah. everyone out there always wants the magic bullet to lose weight. Is fiber the answer we are all searching for? You know, I'm a little reluctant to call it a magic bullet. I mean, it's just, it makes it sound too easy. And I don't know that anything is easy. But what I do know is this, that fiber, one of the most important things that fiber does that people should know is that it activates our satiety hormones. So what that means is that you actually will get full, you will feel full, but you will have consumed less calories. And there was a recent study that came out that was extremely interesting because it was highly controlled, right? And um, basically they took a group of people and they had them commit to an entire month locked up in essentially a metabolic ward, like in a hospital. And so they had complete control since they literally stayed in this room. They had complete control over the food that they were given to these people. So they knew exactly what they were eating. And they, they put them on two weeks of a plant-based diet versus two weeks of a ketogenic diet. So, you know, their goal was to see high fat, low carb. That's the ketogenic diet versus high carb, low fat. That was the plant-based diet. And they told these people like, eat as much as you want. Don't restrict yourself. Eat as much as you want. And what happened was really interesting, which is that people who were on the plant-based diet, they achieved the same level of satiety, meaning that they felt full, but they had consumed 600 less calories per day. And so when they looked at this over the course of two weeks, what they saw is that the people that were eating a plant-based diet significantly reduced their body fat. Believe it or not, the people on the ketogenic diet did not. The people on the ketogenic diet lost weight, but it was not body fat that they lost. It was either muscle mass or it was glycogen, which is the stuff that basically gets burned up when you go low carb and you can lose, you can lose body weight when you burn up your glycogen. So the point being that this very highly controlled study of humans where, you know, they gave them unlimited access to food, but it had to be either plant-based or ketogenic for two weeks. They saw that fiber that you, that you get in the plant-based diet allowed them to eat 600 less calories per day, which led to fat loss. And this is the reason why I, I'm a believer. And I sincerely believe if you're eating the right food, you can literally eat without restriction. You can eat as much as you want. And if it's whole foods, whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, legumes, if, you, if that's what you're eating, your body will automatically stop you before you overeat. And because of that, you don't have to restrict your diet. You can eat without restriction and you can still lose weight. So I've never counted calories, but I lost 50 pounds. And the way that I did it was by eating the right food, just gravitating to the right food as opposed to other stuff. Wow, I didn't know that. And I've done keto before and it's really, really hard, especially. I love to have some carbs sometimes. <laughs> but overall, it was definitely hard. I mean, I lost 
I mean, 10 pounds probably, but overall, I mean, it's, it's hard to have lifestyle just based on keto all the time. So of course you're going to come back to your normal lifestyle and you might gain something back. So it always doesn't really work. Do you think in fiber supplements, like just taking fiber, not as far as natural fruits and veggies, but fiber supplements at all? I mean, also like Metamucil and all that. I do. I do. So I, I think that they should be like, I think the key is I want people to recognize that the word supplement means that it's a supplement. So it's taken in addition to whatever you're doing. To me, diet and lifestyle need to come first. You should be getting most of your fiber from your diet. You shouldn't try and you shouldn't say, oh, well, I don't have to eat as much. You know, I don't have to have a salad because I'm going to go and pick this Metamucil. Like that doesn't make sense. So, but I do think that there is definite value to fiber supplements. Um, I'm a huge fan of acacia powder and um, wheat dextrin and partially hydrolyzed guar gum. And I'll actually put these fiber supplements into my coffee in the morning. And I literally can't even tell that they're in there. They just disappear. And so it just makes it super easy for me to do. And I, I do it myself. What is the difference between prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics? Okay, so I, I love this question. Your listeners, I'm sure, have heard of probiotics. Probiotics are the living bacteria. And um, you know, you can get them in a capsule, but you know, guess what? This is kind of interesting. You actually have them already inside of you. Those same bacteria are already there. And if you want more of them, you just you could just boost them by feeding them. And so prebiotics are the food that feed these microbes. Prebiotics, like fiber, is an example of a prebiotic. It feeds these microbes. And when you feed them, they're alive, just like us. They get stronger and they become more capable of doing the things that we need our gut to do. You know, we have these ideas, these concepts, probiotic bacteria, prebiotic fiber. But what's interesting is that if you, w- if you took fiber but you didn't have any bacteria, they wouldn't really do, the fiber wouldn't really do anything. And if you had bacteria, but you never fed the bacteria any fiber, they really wouldn't do that much to help you either. What I want people to understand is that what really matters is not these individual components like fiber or, pre-bi- or probiotics. What really matters is when they come together. When you take fiber and you eat it, it will come into contact with the bacteria that live in your colon, including the probiotic bacteria. It will feed them, they will grow stronger, and then they will take that fiber and transform it into postbiotics. Specifically, they will release what we call short-chain fatty acids, like butyrate, acetate, and propionate. So they will release these short-chain fatty acids, and these short-chain fatty acids, those are the postbiotics, and they're they're, I mean, they're incredible. They have healing effects throughout the entire body, literally right there in the gut. They reverse and heal leaky gut. They optimize our immune system. They lower our cholesterol. They prevent type 2 diabetes. These are the same things that activate the satiety hormones. This is why fiber allows us to lose weight. They actually spread throughout the entire body through the bloodstream. They have effects in the lungs. They have effects on the heart, protecting us from coronary artery disease. And they even travel so far as the brain and they can have effects in the brain. So the point being, the fiber itself is not that magical. The probiotics themselves are not that magical. What's truly magical is when fiber and bacteria meet and they produce postbiotic short-chain fatty acids. That is the money spot. That is where it's at because that's what heals our body. No wonder why I was taking fiber supplements but not eating enough veggies and i felt like they were not working for me i was like that doesn't make any difference at all and now when you explained everything now i understand why because i have to like combine it all not just have the fiber supplement itself and hoping yeah. something. <laughs> the fiber can help but it's the fiber by itself is not going to be enough to really get you now i see the difference hmm. Should we take probiotics after taking antibiotics? You know, it's really interesting because if you went back not that long ago, I used to myself give probiotics after antibiotics. There was a study that came out in September of 2018, so about two years ago, where basically what they showed 
is that when you give a person probiotics after antibiotics, you actually slow the recovery of the microbiome. So the antibiotic changes the microbiome. You want it to get back to normal and taking the probiotic doesn't help. It actually slows down that process of healing. I've actually changed my approach now. I, don't, I do not give probiotics after antibiotics, except in very rare circumstances. So it's extremely rare for me to do that. Most of the time what I do is I try to encourage people to eat a plant-based diet, take a fiber supplement. You want to feed the healthy bacteria. That way you bring them back immediately. So feed the good guys with healthy food. Try to avoid the unhealthy stuff. Try not to sabotage your microbiome with processed foods, with alcohol, with saturated fat from animal products. You know, try to avoid those things. Feed the gut with fiber, exercise, make sure you get a good night's rest and your body will heal. How do you find plant passion for a sense, if you have a sensitive gut? A plant passion to me means you're like excited about eating plants. And, you know, I'll be honest, first of all, to say that when I ate the standard American diet, I enjoyed the food that I ate. It was hurting me. Um, it was, you know, making me ill and it would give me a hangover. But I still loved that food. And, but what I want people to know is that when you change your diet, your taste buds come along for the ride. And so you can actually alter your taste buds so that you will have a plant passion. You will love these foods. The challenge is for the person who has a sensitive gut. The reason they have a sensitive gut is that there's been damage to the gut, right? People that have these food sensitivities, that's not just a part of normal life. People that have food sensitivities, it's because there's been damage to the gut. We need to heal it. And the way that we do that is by reintroducing these foods slow and low. So Food sensitivities can be reversed. You don't have to live in misery with food sensitivities. You can fix them. My book shows you how to do that. And, you know, sort of a preview, the way, that, the way that you do it is to build up the strength of your gut by introducing the foods that you're sensitive to. You go super low and slow in the very beginning. And over the course of time, you can ramp them up. And what you'll find is that as you ramp them up, you become increasingly capable of dealing with them. You restore that function to your gut. It's kind of conceptually similar to exercise. Your gut is like a muscle. It can be trained. It can be made strong. But the way that you train it and by making it and the way that you make it strong is by working it. And the only way to work it is to put the food down there and let it do the work. So by introducing food slowly over time, you can start to ramp up those foods that you're sensitive to. And that's like an exercise routine where you go to the gym and you start off with five pounds and then you go to 10 and then you go to 15 and you ramp up over time as your strength grows. And as far as food allergies, some people have like peanut allergy, dairy allergy, and I mean, dairy sensitivity and all that. Do we, I mean, some people get them when, since they're little and some people get them later on. Can it all be reversed with, uh, plant-based diet? All right. This is a great question. Thank you. Um, the answer is that if, when you have a true allergy, that means that your immune system gets activated and goes on the attack. And when it's a true allergy, a very small amount will still trigger the immune system. So for example, people that have a severe peanut allergy Sometimes they can't go on an airplane with peanuts. They're not even eating the peanut themselves. They can't go on an airplane with peanuts because that may activate the immune system. That's to me crazy, but it's real. When you have a true food allergy, whether it be peanuts or for example, to wheat, you know, you, um, you oftentimes will see people, they'll break out in hives or they'll get shortness of breath, wheezing, difficulty, um, difficulty getting good breath of air their throat might close off, their tongue might swell, or their lips may swell. Those are the symptoms of an allergy. It's severe, it's intense. And that's not the kind of thing that I would encourage someone to just manage on their own. There are, this is such a good question, because there are ways to fix a food allergy. There are ways to do it. And there are ways to do it with a plant-based diet. 
but it needs to be done with a health professional. It's a very different, it's a much higher level of risk with a food allergy than, <clears throat> than it is a food intolerance. A food intolerance is just simply that your gut is struggling to process the food. Lactose intolerance from dairy, that's an intolerance, it's not a true allergy. And what's interesting is that, so I, just to be clear up front, I, I don't recommend that people consume dairy. I actually am opposed to people consuming dairy. But if you do, like I know that you do, and that's totally fine, and it's, that's okay. Like I get that. What I want people to know though, is that you can actually make your gut more capable of processing and digesting lactose. There are two studies that I want to tell you about real quick. One, where they took people who were lactose intolerant and they would, fit, they would feed them dairy, but they started low and they would slowly increase the amount of dairy over time. And what was interesting is that they found that by doing that, the gut became much more efficient at dealing with the lactose. And therefore, the people had less symptoms, less gas, less diarrhea, less bloating. So as the gut became stronger, they were, they were able to actually deal with so much more and have even less symptoms. And the second thing I want to tell you about real quick is there was another study where they actually fed people fiber. So they didn't even feed them dairy. They just gave them fiber. And by giving them fiber, they healed their gut. And by healing their gut, they actually were able to reintroduce the lactose, the dairy. And they did so much better because they had healed the gut. So the point being that when you have a food intolerance or a food sensitivity, we should, we should try to address the food sensitivity by healing the gut. And also as far as some uh, problems that people might have, like PCOS is very common and anxiety, depression and all of that. And do you, it's all comes from the gut. Like I didn't know that till I saw it in your book and I was amazed by it. And I, I didn't know like how come all of this that we treat with different, so many different medicine and it's actually affects our body and has side effects and it all comes from gut and all can be cured just by changing your diet. Yeah, the, the, it's quite amazing to consider this. I think the backstory is worth mentioning, which is this, that there's never been a moment in human history where we were sterile. Every human, you go back to the very first human, uh, the very first man, the very first woman, they had a microbiome. They had microbes. And those microbes were there helping them to survive. Because when we live longer, they live longer. And that's the nature of a true symbiotic relationship. We have each other's back. So we evolved with these microbes. And during the course of time, we learned to trust them with some of the most important parts of our health. So like digestion, what's more important than digestion? That's our access to nutrients. That, that is like literally our life. We can't live without that. So these microbes they are a critical part of our digestive process, getting us access to the nutrients in our food. But beyond that, they're connected to our immune system. 70% of our immune system lives in our gut. If you want to optimize the immune system, you need to heal the gut. But if you damage the gut, you, you are damaging the immune system too. And this is the reason why we see so many allergic diseases like asthma and you know seasonal allergies. This is why we see so many autoimmune diseases these days like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease, is that when we damage the gut, we damage the immune system. Our gut's also connected to our metabolism. And we've been told that diet is calories in, calories out, and it's not quite that simple. Um, we have evidence to indicate that our gut microbiome actually has a very large stay in calorie balance and weight balance. When we heal the gut, you make yourself far more capable of controlling your weight. And when your gut is damaged, it's very easy for the gut, for the weight to spin out of control. Our microbes are connected. You mentioned this PCOS. So PCOS is a hormonal imbalance. Um, you see this in women who have reduced levels of estrogen, but also increased levels of androgens. There are microbes in our gut that control estrogen levels. There are microbes in our gut that control androgen levels. 
this is the reason why our gut is connected to PCOS. It's also connected to endometriosis, endometrial hyperplasia, ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, breast cancer. And, um, and then finally, our gut is connected to our brain. You really can't separate them. The, the brain's best friend is your gut. And this is the reason why you can alter a person's mood by affecting their gut. Um, that the gut health has been connected to ADD, to autism, to anxiety, depression, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Um, you know, so it's quite fascinating to sort of zoom out for a moment and realize that the gut is central to almost all of human health. It affects everything in the body. Wow, that's definitely amazing. I didn't know all this. And should we consume only organic fruits and veggies or it doesn't really matter? Because I remember when I came to US, funny enough, all the food tastes to me so plain, no matter what I ate, even organic foods. But for some reason in Russia, they had the food tasted, had different taste and it has such a different smell, like even strawberries or any fruits had so much flavor. And here it was, it was not the same. Yeah. And I can see that. And I think that, you know, one of the issues is that we have certain farming practices here in the United States. And to me, it's more than just literally are there pesticide residues on the, on the plant. I think that there's also questions about the effect that our farming practices are having on our soil. And, you know, our soil is where the nutrients for our food come from. Soil health is proportional to human health. And so if we are destroying our soil with the chemicals that we put into our environment, then we are, in a way, we're going to pay the price for this because we're not going to be able to create a food supply that's healthy enough. And so from my perspective, to answer your question, should we only eat organic fruits and vegetables? You know, if, if price were not a consideration at all, I would say yes. But the problem is that they're very expensive. So I recognize that there's a balance that we all are trying to achieve. In our house, we do almost exclusively organic fruits and vegetables. The motivation from my perspective is number one, there are studies that suggest that, that organic fruits and vegetables reduce our exposure to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Number two, my second motivation is that I want to reward the farmers who are doing, who are practicing organic farming. So every time we spend a dollar, we are spending it on someone. We are empowering someone. That dollar is going to go somewhere and they're going to get to use that to make themselves do more. So I choose to place my vote with the organic fruits and vegetables farmers. And number three, I want to protect the soil. I'm worried that our farming practices are going to come back to bite us in the tail over the coming decades. And so from my perspective, I feel like it's important, but for the person who's listening to our podcast and is saying, I don't know if I can afford organic fruits and vegetables. Here's, here's the trick from my perspective. If the skin is thin buy organic for the win. So what I mean by that is if it's a leafy green, if it's a berry, an apple, something where you're literally going to eat the skin of it, then that's where I tend to prioritize my money being spent on organic. On the flip side, if the skin is thick, then you, you have the right to choose whatever you want. What I'm saying is if you have a banana or an orange or an avocado and you're going to peel the top layer off and discard it, well, that's, that's the ideal opportunity to save a couple dollars by not buying organic. So that's the approach that I typically take to this question. Hmm, that's very interesting. That's a great advice. And should we consume everything only gluten-free? Because so many people assume they have gluten intolerance, so they try to eat everything gluten-free. Yeah, it doesn't really make any difference. So it's kind of interesting. I uh, have discovered that some people consider my perspective on this to be a little controversial, but I don't um, because... To me, my perspective on this is really bore out through looking hard at the research evidence uh, as opposed to getting caught up in sort of a wave of emotion or fad or whatever it may be. And when I look at the evidence of gluten, what I want people to understand is this. Number one, 
most gluten containing foods are highly processed foods. I mean, I would get rid of those for sure. Like you don't need ultra processed foods in your life. The question is, do we need to get rid of like sourdough and Ezekiel bread, these healthy forms of wheat? And the answer is this. There are some people, yes, like if you have celiac disease, then you need to be gluten-free. And there's just no debate. If you have celiac disease, you need to be gluten-free. But if you don't have celiac disease or some other indication that makes it absolutely necessary, then I do think that you should include some gluten in your, in your diet. And by gluten, I mean some bread, like Ezekiel bread or sourdough, because there was a study that came out recently that suggested that when we eliminate, when we go gluten-free, we are eliminating the number one source of whole grains in the American diet. And by doing that, we actually increase our risk of coronary artery disease, heart disease. And this is the number one killer in the United States. And the last thing that we should be doing from my perspective is making dietary choices that expose us to increased risk of our number one killer. We should be creating ways to protect ourselves from the top killers, not increasing the risk. So, and that's, that's the issue with going gluten-free. Now, let me just say, you can be gluten-free and be completely healthy, but you have to almost be a nutritionist to understand it. There's this concept. If you drop the gluten, then you need to make a concerted effort to ramp up the gluten-free whole grains. I'm referring to quinoa and sorghum and teff. These are examples of gluten-free whole grains. If you're going gluten-free, you got to increase those guys. It's just some studies reported in some people that when they went gluten-free, they had clear skin and, you know, clear out their acne. Not sure if it's really true or not. They very well may have. And that's, and that's an important, I mean, I think it's important to have these conversations because there's nothing wrong with that study. And I wouldn't say, oh, well, that's not true. It is true. But here's the thing. What are the gluten-containing foods that they got rid of? Because most gluten-containing foods are processed foods. So when people eliminate gluten and they're eliminating processed foods, well, that can be a good thing. What I'm saying is I don't want us to throw the baby out water by eliminating the healthy forms of wheat like sourdough and Ezekiel bread because those serve a purpose, which is to protect us from coronary artery disease. Yeah, that's true. And what do you think about juicing versus just drinking smoothies? Because I usually do juicing a couple times a week and I do smoothies more often because it's easier. But which one is healthier for us? I think you can probably guess where I'm going to go here because my book is called Fiber Fueled. So I'm a huge fiber fan. And the problem with juicing is that we eliminate the fiber. We're separating the juice from the fiber. And juicing can be okay. I don't want people to like hear me wrong. I think that it's okay to drink juice, but I don't want it to be a sweet juice. You know, if it's like a super sugary juice, that's not a healthy juice. A healthy juice is one that's kind of bitter because what you're doing is you're really sort of getting more plants and those phytochemicals into your body. And I do think that like juicing can be done as a supplement or an addition to a healthy diet. But if you give me a choice between these two, I will clearly take the smoothies because the smoothies retain the fiber and the fiber is what's feeding our microbiome. And so to me, I don't want to throw out the healthiest part of the plant, which is the fiber. Yeah, I think so too. Do you think it's important to eat a certain number of times a day or it doesn't matter how many times a day you eat? It's just based on everyone. I mean, just based on whatever you prefer. I feel like, you know, as you're sort of alluding to, I feel like it's okay to have an intuitive approach. And I also think that the way that we feel is influenced by our habits. So when we make some sort of radical change, we're going to feel it much more than if you start to implement changes slowly. So I'll give you a quick example. I don't have a hard rule on breakfast. Um, what I mean by that is that myself, most days, I don't eat breakfast. Most days, my routine goes like this. I wake up in the morning, I have two large glasses of water, and then I get, and while I'm drinking the water, the, the coffee pot is brewing. And then I get my coffee with my prebiotic fiber in it. 
coffee actually has some beneficial qualities. It has some prebiotics. So basically I'm kind of feeding my microbiome, but I'm not eating any solid food. And I will go to work and I will work until lunchtime at noon. And then I have a nice solid lunch. And I've gotten very used to this where I'm not starving at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. And if I was, I would probably eat a piece of fruit, but I'm not starving in the morning. Um, so I am able to get by with just coffee until lunchtime. And then I have lunch and then I have an early dinner. And then after dinner, no food until I go to bed. So that that way, you know, if dinner's at 6 p.m., I could wake up the next morning and I've already been fasting for at least 12 hours. And so that's kind of my daily cycle. But I do have days like on the weekend where, you know, I'll make a piece of avocado toast or something like that for breakfast, or I'll have a big smoothie for breakfast. I wouldn't deprive, there's no hard and fast rule. I don't think that you need to deprive yourself of breakfast, but what you don't want is you don't want to be waking up and adding like junk food to your morning routine. If you're going to have breakfast, let it be high quality, make it a smoothie or oatmeal or avocado toast. That makes sense. I don't like to eat at night too. I don't eat past six, seven o'clock until like next morning. Sometimes maybe I eat at lunch and I skip breakfast. So I do unintentional fasting. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. And I, I think that that's, that's actually a very reasonable way to do it. And there, I think that there are some benefits to doing it that way. I just, you know, the one thing that I will say is that fasting is so sort of trendy and hot right now. And that's cool. I'm okay with that. Um, let's not be like, pushing our body to the extreme with fasting and then ignoring all these other things. Like fasting is just one part of the equation. Make sure you're getting a good night's rest. Make sure you're getting your exercise, eat a nice healthy plant-based diet, you know, drink a lot of water, um, try to manage your stress. Like all of those things are necessary for us to really achieve our health. Yeah. Because intermittent fasting is just such a hot trend right now, but I've been doing it for a long time, not even knowing that it's actually existed, but it's just became popular lately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's now it's become super trendy recently. And what do you think of different detoxes? You know, there are so many products and tea cleanses and different three day cleanse, seven day cleanses, just different supplements. What do you think of those? The idea of a, of a detox or cleanse or something like that basically implies that you're like flushing something out and then getting back to your normal routine. So first of all, I, I have not seen any convincing studies that suggest that these things do anything. I, I want people to understand the best way to heal and optimize your body is to create the diet and lifestyle that are sustainable and also healing. You know, that, that to me is the right way to do this. So when we jerk ourselves around, like I'm going to do a month of this, I'm going to do a whole 30, but then I'm going to come back to eating whatever. When we jerk our body all over the place, we're not actually doing ourselves any good and we're not making ourselves any healthier. The way that we make ourselves healthy is with a sustained, optimized diet and lifestyle that once you get used to it, you know, you've described some of the things that you do, like for example, that you do the intermittent fasting. Once you get used to doing that, it's just, it's just the way that you live. It's your daily routine, but it's a beautiful thing because the way that you live is actually healing you. And so it becomes effortless. And that to me is where the money is at. Let's not get like caught up in quick fixes. Quick fixes don't really exist. All right. You're not going to fix all your problems with something that you can buy off the internet or some supplement. You're just not. What's real is diet and lifestyle done in a sustained way. And when you do that, you will get used to it and then you will thrive and feel so good. I've tried so many different cleanses and teas and everything is possible out there. And I've noticed that actually they put my system off the track because they, you feel good while you're doing it. But after it's like IBS problems or some other problems, it actually gives you more side effects than, than benefits. Exactly. Exactly. That's the issue is that you're jerking your body all over the place like a roller coaster. We don't need to be jerking our body all over the place like a roller coaster. We just need to have a nice smooth ride in the right direction. Yeah. Another trend out there is so popular right now is colonics. I know it can be deadly sometimes because your body is getting so dehydrated. 
and you actually I mean it has to be managed properly but there are so many med spas that promote that and I don't think they actually promote it and do it with all the rules they supposed to so how scary is this for someone in what do you think about it yeah I am not a fan to be honest with you concern that I have is this most people don't realize this but 60% of the weight of your stool is actually your microbiome, like these bacteria, all right? So your poop is not made up of like the excrement of your food. Your poop is mostly made up of the bacteria from your microbiome that are passing through. And so when we go in and we flush our intestines out entirely, we are flushing out our microbiome. That to me is not something that makes your microbiome healthier. That is something that makes your microbiome less healthy. And we have studies to suggest that when anytime we flush our microbiome out, you know, clean out the colon entirely, that we are actually temporarily causing harm. Many of the people who do colonics and they feel relief or they feel better, which I don't dispute at all. I know that they feel that way. Um, I think the reason why is because they suffer with constipation. And so the colonic allows them to temporarily address this constipation issue. But the problem is that you're making yourself less healthy in the process. And so if your constipation, if the problem starts with damage to your microbiome, which it does, and then the way that you fix it is by temporarily relieving the constipation, but sacrificing your microbiome in the process of doing that, you're actually making yourself less healthy and you're making your constipation problem worse. There's other ways that we can approach constipation that are very healthy and that will enhance the microbiome, like using prebiotic fiber in combination with magnesium. So I would really encourage people to avoid the colonics. Um, you know, you do it once, not, not a huge deal, but you make a routine of it. And you, I, from my perspective, I think you're causing harm. But for those who suffer with constipation, what should they take? Like, what's the main product or supplement or just food they should include i mean i know fiber is definitely but are there any particular foods that they should include well so the key is this from my perspective constipation first of all is widely prevalent it's everywhere i take care of multiple cases of constipation per day in my clinic and the key is these people always have gas and bloating and you got to get the bowels moving if you take the person who's constipated and they have gas and bloating, they have food sensitivities, if you can get them into a rhythm, get their bowels moving through, they will feel so much better. And then you will be able to open up their diet and start to eat a more abundant, diverse, plant-based diet. But that's not going to work when they're actively constipated. So I don't really change a person's diet when they're constipated. I first focus on getting them pooping. And there's a number of ways that you, you can do this. And I'm just going to tell you, like I, so for the people who are listening at home, I'm not giving you medical advice here, obviously. You need to discuss these things with your doctor. But I will tell you that in my clinic, many times what I'll do is I'll start with this. I'll have them take magnesium in the evening before bedtime. It could be magnesium citrate or magnesium sulfate. They start to ramp it up. So they start off, like for example, with one pill at bedtime. And then after a week, go to two or to three. And they ramp it up until they get into this place where they feel like they're really moving their bowels regularly. Magnesium is, is good because it does not cause any dependence. Like your body doesn't become addicted to it. And most of us need more magnesium, to be honest with you. It's good for headaches. It helps with sleep. It helps with mood. So magnesium to me in the evening is a very reasonable initial approach to constipation. And um, I often will pair that with a, a prebiotic fiber supplement that often they will take in the morning. So that's sort of my standard early approach. Can you buy it off, oh, just yeah. off the counter? And which one should you get? Because they're different dosage. So you can definitely get over the counter and it doesn't necessarily matter which one you get that much, to be honest with you. And there's no standard dose because we're all different. So it depends on you personally and how constipated you are and how your body works. But I'll just give you a few examples. You get magnesium citrate, you get magnesium sulfate. You could also get calm magnesium. All of those are perfectly fine. And the key is the titration. 
So what I mean by that is that you start at a low dose and you just, you do it once a day in the evening, you start there, you give it a couple of days, you see if it works, if it works great, if it's not enough, take more. And you just start, you start introducing this more and more over time until you get to that spot where you feel like this is really working and moving things through. No matter which type of magnesium you take, if you take enough of it, it will move your bowels. The um, other thing that I would love to mention real quick is I want you all to be careful with Senna, Senecot, Smooth Move Tea, Dolcolax, Cascara, and even aloe, uh, aloe vera. All of these things are stimulant laxatives. Stimulant means that this is sort of the effect that no one wants to have, which is that your body becomes dependent on it. And so the problem is that if you start pooping with a stimulant laxative, what you're going to find is that you're only able to poop with a stimulant laxative and you become addicted to it and it's hard to get off. Wow. Aloe vera is highly advertised everywhere always. And it says, oh, it's very healthy for you. It's just natural. (laughs) But actually it's not, I guess. Wow. I didn't know that. I mean, it is natural and a little bit of aloe vera here or there is not a big deal. But if you're drinking aloe vera juice on a daily basis to poop, many people will say, oh, well, I can poop really well when I take my aloe vera juice. Yeah, you can because it's a stimulant laxative. And the problem is these patients, it's, it's quite challenging because they'll come into my clinic and they'll say, the only way I can poop is to take my aloe vera juice. And you, you say, well, we got to get you off of that because it's, it's, you're, you've become like habituated to it. Your body is basically saying it's only going to work if you take that. And they go, yeah, but the problem is I won't poop if I don't take that. And it's like, exactly, you've become habituated to it. So it becomes, it becomes very hard to kind of work through that, that issue with my patients at times. Yeah, totally. And what do you think of benefits of red wine? Is there any? There are. So resveratrol is a phytochemical that has, it's a polyphenol that you will find in red wine. And resveratrol is good for the microbiome. So we do have studies that suggest that red wine is good for the microbiome, but I want to do a couple caveats because I want people to hear me out and like understand. So, you know, first of all, let me be clear from my perspective. I mean, I I don't have a problem if you want to enjoy a glass of wine. I have a glass of wine once in a while. I don't want people to think, oh, red wine is good for my gut and therefore I'm going to drink red wine every day. Alcohol, including red wine, has been connected to the development of cancer on a number of different levels. I would not encourage or recommend anyone having a daily alcohol habit. I think that if you're going to have alcohol, to have once in a while some alcohol, completely reasonable. And if it's red wine, good. That's great. I, I think that's wonderful for the gut. But the other thing to recognize is that we can celebrate red, red wine for the resveratrol, but we need to acknowledge that the alcohol in the red wine is not good for our microbiome. The flip side is that there are many other sources of resveratrol. Red grapes have resveratrol. There's several other plants that have resveratrol. Believe it or not, peanuts have resveratrol. So why not munch some peanuts and some grapes and skip the red wine or if you want to have red wine once in a while, then so be it. Some people might think, oh, red wine is good for me. I ended up drinking two bottles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the, and that's the issue is like, I would just caution you. That's not, that's not the right way to do it. Where can all the listeners find you? Your social handles, all the info? So uh, you can come and find me on my Instagram, um, which is the Gut Health MD. I'm on Facebook under the same name, the Gut Health MD. I have a website, which is sort of my home base theplantfedgut.com. Come join me there. I have, uh, I have some things that I think people really enjoy. I have a COVID-19 guide. I have a clinical research guide, which helps you to understand like the, the basics of clinical research. So you know how to navigate some of the complexities that exist out there. I have an email list. And then I'm very excited about this. Um, I developed an online course. So I actually have beta tested it twice in the spring um, and last winter with small groups and had amazing results. And so I am super excited because I've been working on this for almost a year now. Um, And it's like an opportunity for me to really deliver the information that I feel like everyone needs to have to optimize their gut health and to do it without the restrictions. Like, you know, when you write a book, you can only write so much. There's literally, you know, chapters that I removed from the book well, guess where those chapters or those ideas are going to show up? They're going to be in the course. 
And so I'm really excited that in August I'm launching this course and cannot wait to get started because I think people are going to love it. Nice. That's amazing. Congratulations on that one. Thank you. Thank you so much for being my guest. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for providing so much great information and can't thank you enough. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a great pleasure. I enjoyed talking about all this stuff with you, including, you know, talking about East Europe and um, our family heritage and where you grew up and all those cool things. And I wish you well. Me too. It was fun. Thank you. That was all for today, guys. I hope you learned a lot and enjoyed this episode. You can always find me on Instagram. It's not basicblonde underscore or NBB podcast. To show some extra love, tag NBB Podcast on your Instagram stories. And if you haven't, subscribe, rate and review Not Basic Blonde Podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, guys. Enjoy your day. How to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.